Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 22, Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. To dream the impossible dream To fight the unbeatable foe To bear with unbearable sorrow To run where the brave dare not go to right the unrightable wrong to love pure and chaste from afar to try when your arms are too weary to reach the unreachable star this is my quest to follow that star No matter how hopeless, no matter how far To fight for the right without question or pause To be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause And I know That my heart will lie peaceful and calm when I'm laid to my rest. And the world will be better for this. That one man, scorned and covered with scars, still strove with his last ounce of courage. To reach the unreachable stars This is my quest To follow that star No matter how hopeless No matter how far To fight for the right Without question or pause To be willing to march into hell For the hell
better for this That one man scorned and covered with scars Still strove with his last ounce of courage Stella, we're back from a month hiatus. We have returned. This is the show that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Thanks for having us. The podcast or this show is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature, and we discuss it, and we determine whether it's worthy of whatever sort of reputation that it may have. I'm the one that came with the pain this month, and I was also the reason for our month hiatus, but I think it helped people so that they could read this tome. But I am very happy to have uh, the poncho to my <laughs> Don Quixote, Tom Vanneries. Yeah, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Oh my goodness. That More beatings. So many beatings. Mm. How are you doing? Hey, yeah, I'm a, well, I'm, I guess, worn out from meetings, getting prepared for school. But otherwise, you know, life is good. I survived my trip to Kenya. There was a close encounter with a lion, but I survived that as well. <laughs> I'm sad to be away, but I'm also, it's, it's also nice to be back in surroundings that you are used to as well. Mm-hmm. And cool. we didn't have any too terrible, interactions on the anniversary on August 12th in our town. No, and not even Washington, D.C., where there was more, where there were actually things scheduled by the same, um, I don't even want to call this person a person, the <gasps> same individual who who, who brought the, 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 uh, the August 12th from last year here. He had a another rally, and I think all of 40 people of his showed up as opposed to hundreds of other people, and uh, it it was a you know he was a non-story, and I was very very happy to hear about that. Mm, yep. So, and no one was hurt. I think we had two arrests in town. At least that's on the news. I think. Well, yeah, we did. One was for somebody who blatantly violated some security rules that they had downtown, and another one was they got into like a small scuffle with a police officer. I think. Nothing really serious. There was something. There was something that that another person got for for an an altercation with with somebody else, and I want to say it might have been a cop, mm. but I'd have to look it up, and I don't remember off the top gotcha. of my head. But yeah, it was it was it, we're talking like minor stuff. Yeah, minor stuff compared to last year. Mm-hmm. Just, I think the sense and and the feeling in town this year is completely different. I mean, last year at this time, you and I were trying to work through it you remember you changed what what you were originally going to do and we decided to do march to sort of mm-hmm. take on our own little counter protest yeah so yeah it's you know i love this town but that that just shed this terrible shadow over it so i'm glad that i think a lot of the community came together in love 
this past Sunday, and so I'm I'm grateful for that. Yeah, me too. And I'm really hoping that, that as the anniversaries go by, you know, next year, the year after that, the city's need to put so many police downtown abates as well. That like people can have their memorials and their and their days of remembrance, maybe days of service or, or whatever they decide to do, um, without the feeling that we have to have like a army of police officers in, yeah. in and around the city. We don't need 1984 to be happening over here. No, no. Um, <laughs> oh, that'd be terrible. To, yeah. Congress is taking care of that for us. Oh, okay. Well, I don't even know how to segue from that to you know <laughs> the book that we're doing. I was trying to think of, I guess, unreality. You know, living in Charlottesville last year was a bit like what what sort of reality am I in? And this guy lives in in his own state of unreality until the very end. Spoiler. But yes, we're doing Don Quixote, and this was something that I I've wanted. It's been on my list, and I've wanted to read it. And this one, as well as Les Mis, are, are two larger novels that you have to carve out space for. Mm-hmm. And Tom and I have talked about. I think Tom is ready to go whenever I finally sit down and read Les Mis. Yeah, you just tell me when you're yeah. ready. I've got. <laughs> so I've. The, I, I read it a while ago, but yeah, I, it's fresh in my mind, and notes. I have a very long summary and notes okay. that I took. So, yeah, so that's so maybe that's a next summer thing. Yeah, you just shoot me a text when you're ready. Sounds good. <laughs> Oh, gosh. I finally did it. Yeah, so I wanted to do this sort of personal betterment as well as foreign language betterment. Uh, last time I manipulated our my foreign language department into reading LMNOP, and I doubled that in this podcast, and I thought, what a great thing to do, Don Quixote. I don't teach Espanol, but I thought this would be great. So this was the reason why I did it, and then my Kenya trip, I was able to carve out time. Thank you, Tom, for letting me do that. (laughs) And so I had, I think, a good chunk of time in which to read this large novel, which it is probably no matter what edition that you're reading. And just as a reminder, I can't remember, I think it was Robert Ward on Goodreads asked me which edition we were reading or which translation we're going with Edith Grossman that's yes. the one that both Tom and I have but that I mean that that doesn't really mean anything for you guys necessarily because the story is going to be the same I think just different translations obviously the words might be impacted but the story is going to be the same yeah I wonder if the translation issue might come up when we get into some of the older ancient epic texts like a Beowulf or an Odyssey oh, sure. so like we were actually discussing this in in at work today because in the ninth grade I teach the Odyssey and we are using uh excerpts out of a textbook that are from the Robert Fritz Gerald translation. Mm. I've not read that translation in whole. I've read the Fagels. Sure. Um, which I thought was actually more accessible than Fitzgerald's. Um Fagels makes it feel like a movie in a way that it's, mm. it's the best way I can describe it. And there is a new translation and first name her first name is Emily, and I want to say her last name is Wilson, but I can't remember off the top of my head. And I have it. I have it in a hardcover. And apparently she stuck to – I think she, she did the translation is an iambic pentameter. Mm. And she stuck to the exact number of lines in Homer in what they've recovered from her Homer's original text. 
So it's actually significantly shorter than Fitzgerald. So like you look at that and then you look at like translations, translations or transcriptions of Beowulf by different people. It's kind of the same way where that might affect the way we look at the story. And, and it might yeah. be worth, if if we have experience reading more than one translation of the text, it might be worth just having a quick back and forth about what we what we realize about that. Yeah, I think we have a – yeah, this one's easier because it was already prose. I think you are going to mm-hmm. get into some challenges when you have poetry like you're yeah. talking about because there are some authors that choose to keep it in some sort of verse style and then others that choose to create it and make it into prose. So mm-hmm. once we get there, yeah. Viewer's choice, I suppose. Well, what is your particular history with this uh, this big this big boy? Which is, I think, the longest book we've read so far. I believe so. Um, I think For good reason <laughs> you can't read this in a yeah, month. Yeah, this, this is a long. Yeah, yeah. Um, this uh, this is the only the only first and only time I've read it. Um, I knew of Don Quixote mm. prior to this. To I went to Europe in in. Um, the summer between my junior and senior year of high school and we were in Spain for the last leg of the trip and um, the group I was with I have a picture upstairs in a photo album of a statue in either it's either Madrid or Barcelona and I think it's Madrid of a statue of Don Quixote riding um, his horse and I believe Sancho Panza is next to him mm. and uh, but beyond that and beyond knowing uh, knowing the book and knowing about uh, knowing phrases that we associate with the and words we associate with it or that have come from it like quixotic the phrase tilting at windmills you know things like that knowing the allusions um for years but have never read the source material uh, it's kind of like i know you uh one of your favorite books is and i don't I, I don't know if you have the same feeling about the movie but i know you like gone with the wind and i've never seen all of gone with the wind but i know many of the very common things that scenes and like if somebody makes a reference to gone with the wind in a tv show or a movie or whatever and it's one of the really well known ones i know it i knew that that was the same way the godfather was for me for years and then I finally sat down to watch The Godfather, and I'm like, oh, these are all the references. So it's kind of like I, I, I was a little bit with this, where we're like, now I finally get to see some of the things that are that are alluded to. But yeah, this is the first time I, I read I've ever read the book. Mm, yeah, I think my introduction to him was most likely with Wishbone because I do re- very vividly remember an episode of Wishbone where he did Don Quixote, as as I, I feel like Wishbone probably introduced me to a lot of great literature classics, to be honest. That's an amazing show. I still love it. And I had known of him, funnily enough, I think my brother, I think it was English class, must have read portions of it, but he had to do a Don Quixote project. I remember my mother helped him and it was this really elaborate my mother is a genius but it was like this elaborate thing where you move little Don Quixote and the windmill windmill also moves like Mm. I almost wish I hope she probably still has it I'd like to see it now so there are small interactions like that and then you know knowing of the the Broadway musical Man of La Mancha but I hadn't sat down and actually read it until uh, June when I decided to crack it open and it was also yeah. my little companion throughout the trip in Kenya when I had some some downtime as well as the 14 hour air travel 
I had um, I'd heard of Manila Lancha, by the way. Um, oh, okay. Growing up in the New York area, we would get a lot of on on local channels. Uh, we would get a lot of commercials for Broadway plays, and uh, Manila Mancha was going through a revival in the early nineteen ninety, maybe the late eighties, because I believe Raúl Julia was playing the was in the main role, so it was probably the late nineteen eighties, and um, and they, we would see commercials for Manila Mancha and. Um, comic book related story here uh this goes back about four or five years ago i stood in line at the baltimore comic con to get a signature from george perez you know of he of new teen titans fame oh i know (laughs) and um i got i did get a sketch that day i was pretty psyched i have a wonder woman well my wife has a wonder woman sketch by perez in her office he's one of those guys where you've probably seen this as you're standing in line with artists and they are sketching sometimes while they're talking and stuff like that. And sometimes they're doing small sketches for people. And he was doing that. The line was slow, but we're all just standing there watching this guy work. And at one point he was doing a sketch of the man of La Mancha and he's singing one of the numbers of it. And he's putting all this detail into a sketch he's doing on the spot. And we're all just standing there like, I, I I have nowhere near that amount of talent in my in my hands like that. It was just it was really really impressive to watch him work. That's so great. yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, I did want to talk about the author, of course, and then we're going to have the the summary. And I got both these things from different sites. The history of the author I got from biography.com, and I think I went on SparkNotes (laughs) to get the plot synopsis. And the reason why is because, well, Tom is a dedicated man. I've talked about Tom before on my own show on Backroll the Oracle because he is one of the most prepared co-hosts I think that I have and just how diligent and very thorough he is with his plot synopses. But, but I don't have <laughs> yes. But the, bar, but the bar to clear there is like shag. <laughs> Why everyone picks on that poor guy? I hope he comes on this show sometime. If we read one of those, like V, what are those called? V. V. Called v. v? Yeah, or, yeah. Or we'll v do our problem. Star Wars expanded unit. We'll... <laughs> yeah. Next but... week we're doing Thrawn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but anyways, the reason why I went on Sparknotes is because I wanted something that was overarching enough, but also condensed because it could be, I mean, he goes out three times, doesn't he? And three different stories, I guess you could say. So there's just so much that happens in this book, which is why it's over 900 pages long that I I felt like some other person did it better than I ever could. It's like what, like 126 chapters, I think. 52 and there are two 52 and 74, 52 in the first one and 74 in the second one, I think. So that's, that's a lot. It is. To, to summarize. It is, yeah. Okay, well, just talking about uh, Cervantes here, he was born near Madrid in 1547. He became a soldier in 1570, and he was badly wounded in the Battle of Lepanto. And he was captured by the Turks in 1575 and then spent five years in prison before he was ransomed and returned home. Which, if you think about that, this should sound familiar to one of those minor characters that Quixote runs up against, the Moor, I remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, After less successful earlier efforts, Cervantes finally achieved literary success in his later years, and he published Don Quixote in 1605 and died in 1616. Biography.com goes on to talk about his military exploits, and basically you just need to know that he was a pretty successful soldier. He was known for his bravery. 
1585, he published his first novel, La Galatea, but the pastoral romance failed to make much of a splash. And he also tried to make it in theater because at that time plays were an important form of entertainment in Spain. But he <laughs> did not he did not receive fame nor fortune, and only two of his plays have actually survived. When he finally published Don Quixote, and of course, when you actually are reading Don Quixote, you'll see that after the first part was published, a false part was published, which he brings into that novel there. It actually became the world's first bestseller, and it's now been translated into more than 60 different languages. And it is also thought of, which is one of my questions, as being the first modern novel. So, we'll see. Besides being the first modern novel, what comes with that is the fact that he has influenced and inspired several other authors of whom we've already read. And, of course, we've got the musical, The Man of La Mancha, and then there is an artwork piece by Pablo Picasso that is also very well known. Do you think you would say anything else about Cervantes? Not off, that? No, not off the top of my head. I'm looking at your thing, and no. Um, I think okay. there is a maybe recently completed but for years like in development hell film by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python fame called like mm-hmm. the man who loved Don Quixote or something and I'm thinking it off the top of my head um, that I know he had a Don Quixote related project and I think I saw something about it recently having actually been filmed and completed I think Adam Driver is involved but I'm not entirely sure about that so now on to the plot synopsis <laughs> Okay, here we go. Don Quixote is a middle-aged gentleman from the region of La Mancha in central Spain. Obsessed with the chivalrous ideals touted in books he has read, he decides to take up his lance and sword to defend the helpless and destroy the wicked. After a failed adventure, a first failed adventure, he sets out on a second one with a somewhat befuddled laborer named Sancho Panza, whom he has persuaded to accompany him as his faithful squire. In return for Sancho's services, Don Quixote promises to make Sancho the wealthy governor of an isle. On his horse, Rocinante is a barn nag, <laughs> and this barn nag is also well past his prime. Don Quixote rides the roads of Spain in search of glory and grand adventure. He gives up food, shelter, and comfort all in the name of a peasant woman, Dulcinea del Toboso, whom he envisions as a princess. On his second expedition, Don Quixote becomes more of a bandit than a savior, stealing from and hurting baffled and justifiably angry citizens while acting out against what he perceives as threats to his knighthood or to the world. Don Quixote abandons a boy, leaving him in the hands of an evil farmer simply because the farmer swears an oath that he will not harm the boy. He steals a barber's basin that he believes to be the mythic Membrino's helmet, and he becomes convinced of the healing powers of the balsam of Fierbras, an elixir that makes him so ill that by comparison he later feels healed. <laughs> Sancho, st- I remember they're like throwing up so much. Sancho uh, stands by Don Quixote, often bearing the brunt of the punishments that arise from Don Quixote's behavior. The story, he gets thrown off a roof one time by in a rug. The story of Don Quixote's deeds includes the stories of those he meets on his journey. Don Quixote witnesses the funeral of a student who dies as a result of his love for a disdainful lady turned shepherdess. He frees a wicked and devious galley slave, Ginés de Pasamonte. Pasamonte. Okay. Yeah. And unwittingly reunites two bereaved couples, Cardenio and Lucinda and Ferdinand and Dorothea. 
Torn apart by Ferdinand's treachery, the four lovers finally come together at an inn where Don Quixote sleeps, dreaming that he is battling a giant. Along the way, the simple Sancho plays the straight man to Don Quixote, trying his best to correct his master's outlandish fantasies. Two of Don Quixote's friends, the priest and the barber, come to drag him home. Believing that he is under the force of an enchantment, he accompanies them, thus ending a second expedition and the first part of the novel. The second part of the novel begins with a passionate invective against a phony sequel of Don Quixote that was published in the interim between Cervantes' two parts. Everywhere Don Quixote goes, his reputation, gleaned by others from both the real and the false versions of the story, precedes him. As the two embark on their journey, Sancho lies to Don Quixote, telling him that an evil enchanter has transformed Dulcinea into a peasant girl. Undoing this enchantment, in which even Sancho comes to believe, becomes Don Quixote's chief goal. Don Quixote meets a duke and duchess who conspire to play tricks on him. They make a servant dress up as Merlin, for example, and tell Don Quixote that Dulcinea's enchantment, which they know to be a hoax, can be undone only if Sancho whips himself 3,300 times on his naked backside. Under the watch of the duke and duchess, Don Quixote and Sancho undertake several adventures. They set out on a flying wooden horse, hoping to slay a giant who has turned a princess and her lover into metal figurines and bearded the princess's female servants. During his stay with the duke, Sancho becomes governor of a fictitious isle. He rules for ten days until he is wounded in an onslaught the duke and duchess sponsor for their entertainment. Sancho reasons that it is better to be a happy laborer than a miserable governor. A young maid at the Duchess's home falls in love with Don Quixote, I would say, with quotation marks around the falls in love situation, but he remains a staunch worshipper of Dulcinea. Their never consummated affair amuses the court to no end. Finally, Don Quixote sets out again on his journey, but his demise comes quickly. Shortly after his arrival in Barcelona, the Knight of the White Moon, actually an old friend in disguise and in disguise for the second time, vanquishes him. Cervantes relates the story of Don Quixote as a history, which he claims he has translated from a manuscript written by a Moor named Side Hamete Benegeli. Cervantes becomes a party to his own fiction, even allowing Sancho and Don Quixote to modify their own histories and comment negatively upon the false history published in their names. In the end, the beaten and battered Don Quixote forswears all the chivalric truths he followed so fervently and dies from a fever. With his death, knight, knights errant become extinct. Benengeli returns at the end of the novel to tell us that illustrating the demise of chivalry was his main purpose in writing the history of Don Quixote. Whew! Could have been way, way, way long. I was going to say, for a novel that long, that is pretty succinct. <laughs> Thank you, Spark Notes. Well, here's the big question. <laughs> Bigger for you than for me. Did you enjoy this, Tom? I struggled with this, and I'm so I don't really have a did you like it or not like it mm. opinion. I literally struggled to read this book, and and I, I gained some insight as to how my own students um, operate sometimes um, because uh, I I teach I teach AP lit, but I also teach freshmen and uh, standard like a I don't like to use the frame general level, but they are general level and there's a collaborative English aspect so I have students who have special needs in some cases special accommodations I guess is the better way to put it and a lot of them from year to year are kids who if you were I don't know tell me what level grade level they're reading on 
it's probably lower than ninth. So when they get a text that's complicated that I have very little problem reading, they default to hating it because they can't get it. And you start to you start to explain it, and you start to work through it, and they start to get it. In some cases, they still don't really like it, but it's more of like it's just not my thing, or or whatever. But the but the the kind of their impulse tends to be, and and I, I hate to stereotype my students like this, but sometimes their impulse does type to be like to be like I didn't understand what the heck was going on, so this isn't really good. And it took me all summer to read this. I started shortly after we recorded um, the drama episode. And um, that was right around like the middle of June, I think. I finished this on August 8th. So it took me the full two months. And I read most of part two within like two weeks because I was like really behind. In the interim, in those two months, I read one, two, three, four, five, six, seven other books while I was trying to get through Don Quixote, including an entire um, Wonder Woman omnibus. But uh, it was it was a large swaths of this were very very hard for me to understand. If if you're somebody who struggles but you want the challenge, um, I'm actually going to make a format recommendation. I would actually buy the book, not the ebook. I was buying the ebook, and I don't know if it's because my eyesight is just not as good as it used to be or whatever. Um, but this is a book where if you're trying to figure out or if you're trying to go into a discussion like this, I, I do kind of wish I had the paper text so I could flip back and forth through the novel. Doing that with an ebook for me, maybe it's just my age showing. It's just not as easy. But I went to Cliff several times, and I have two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 10, 11, 12 pages of notes that are basically me taking notes off the chapter summaries on Cliff's notes of the novel so that I could understand what was going on in the book, front and back. And so I went, like, I would finish part of it and I would go to Cliff's notes. I have preface. This is what happens. And I was just copying, not copying the Cliff's notes, but taking notes off the Cliff's notes. So I don't know how much I'm going to bring to the discussion. So and and I see where this is a well-regarded novel. Mm-hmm. There was nothing in the plot where I was seeing it where I was like, like this is a terrible story, and I don't understand why people like it so much. The the whole like when I look at the story and I look at what what he's talking about and I look at some of the things he's the points he's making, the satire and things, like I see that. I see where that would be in the book. And I see that where that would be in the book through the lens of Cliff, through my conversations with Cliff. Mm. But I didn't see it when I was reading it. Sometimes I saw some of the humor. Some of the things the the scene with the with the flying horse, mm-hmm. I saw that, but I didn't see Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. I saw Wiley Coyote. But or Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny, like it, it was total Warner Brothers to me, and I totally see. There's a lot like when I mentioned Terry Gilliam and Monty Python early earlier. Uh, there's a lot of like this in Monty Python, um, especially like Holy Grail, um, and so I see. I see where like they're pulling a lot of, of humor from. So I, I can appreciate the novel for what it is, but I can't tell you if I liked it or not because I really struggled to understand it. Okay. Uh, Tom's experience is very different from mine, uh, but I, I think that 
people have different reading experiences. So this is why we've got a good show here. I started it maybe the week before I left for Kenya. I remember I was proctoring a test and I read, I was reading it and I was so pleasantly surprised. Now this is my experience here. So pleasantly surprised with the the language and I felt the ease with understanding and I remember emailing my foreign language department because we were going to read it together but that didn't work out at all because of course I was the only one who finished it but I said you know if you want to get a sense of what the language was like I would compare it to the Count of Monte Cristo which I thought was uh, very easily to engage with and everything and I wasn't getting bogged down in heavy language like with Charles Dickens and I when I was proctoring this test there were moments I remember the first scene where he has this duel with this unsuspecting guy and there were these people in the carriage I had to keep myself from laughing Uh, so uh, I found a lot of the novel very humorous but also tragic because we are following this man who's I mean basically insane so for me actually I, I very much enjoyed it I actually found it pretty easy to engage with I didn't take as long to finish it but I think uh, again, everyone has different reading experiences, and I think probably Tom has books that he is, like, I think he way better understood 1984 and had a better time with it than I did, so I think this is just one of those switches there. So I I recommend this book, but <laughs> okay, well, let's see. Let's see what we have here. I think that one of the big questions is, you know, things that come up in your research of the tale, you know, on Wikipedia or wherever it's going to be, it's always touting that this is the first modern novel. Do you agree with that? And as an English teacher, Tom, for people, you know, listening to this, and maybe for me as well, how would you describe, like, what would your definition be of a modern novel? I would agree with a qualifier that you need to put the word European in front of novel. I think to say this is the first modern novel is a very Eurocentric view considering – because I looked – I was like – I was curious. Is this really – like what is the history of the novel? And I'm, I'm not going to go through it all, but I, I did look up the Wikipedia page. And there have been books and other texts published in the East, China, India, Japan prior to Don Quixote that are very much you know, novels. So – but in, in the European canon – this is considered the first modern novel. And I think if I'm thinking of what a modern novel is, I would say it has to be written in prose. I think that's the first qualifier. So you have like, and this is what, 1600, 1606 he said was book one, and then he died in 1616. So we're talking we're talking early 1600s, right? Mm-hmm. Prior, and, and like, who's the great author we study from the early 1600s? Shakespeare? Yeah, Shakespeare. So (laughs) literature, English literature especially, um, but literature, a lot of what we see around that time, um, we do see a lot of drama. Um, Prior to this, though, the great works that we pull from, especially if we're going down to like basic lit courses and and high school school courses are – uh, prior to this, are more along the lines of, of long-form poetry. So your Canterbury Tales, for instance. Um, so like Chaucer, 
Um, I mentioned Beowulf earlier. Uh, Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. You know, like things that were that have been translated prosaically, but they were written poetically. But this was not written poetically. So I would say that it has to be pro- like a novel. A modern novel has to be prose. You can put elements of poetry into it, but that's kind of like one of the qualifiers. Um, yeah. And it has to, in my mind, it has to have plot and character and conflict. Okay. You know, conflict conflict drives plot and and you have to have characters and plot and, and those things existed before the modern novel you know we we mentioned homer at the mm-hmm. top of the show i mean mm-hmm. the odyssey the iliad the aeneid beowulf gilgamesh these things all have conflict they all have character they all have plot so it's not germane to the novel but yeah so and and it has to have that kind of consistent thread through it you know where you're following the same character and things I wasn't in again. I I wasn't entirely sure what the plot was. It just seemed like he was nuts. He went off on a bunch of adventures. A bunch of people messed with him, and then we went. And then he went back home. So I, in the way that a lot of like current plots tend to be, where there's a complication and a problem, and we're building towards some sort of climax, whether it be Frankenstein and his monster finally having their showdown you know at the end of that book or or somebody going after dracula or um you know the battle against the big bad you know we we tend to think along those lines or like somebody if it was an internal thing somebody kind of finally coming to that moment where they have to come face to face with their problems you know holden watching phoebe on the carousel in central park or you know everything coming to a head at the end of gatsby like you know i kind of see it at the end of this novel where they finally get where he 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 loses the duel to um the 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 knight of the white moon who was he also like the knight of mirrors at one point yeah yeah he's because he tried before and he failed and he's like a bachelor named um oh god i wrote his 12 pages notes and i can't find his name yeah he was like a bachelor and it started with a c or whatever and uh, you know he was like determined to end this or something, and I guess that's the ki- that's the climax of the book. So it's kind of a semi tragic ending, mm. you know, not a tragic ending in the sense of contemporary to this, where we had tragedies involving characters who didn't get the message and then decided to drink the poison and didn't check her pulse. Here stupid, we why go. Idiot. Here we go. Uh, or, or tragedies like Lear and Macbeth and Hamlet where the character like, you know, or, or um, Caesar, where the character like, you know, un- dies as a result of his things that were usually and, and they do it to themselves. Or in Mac- Macbeth's case, he gets taken down. Quixote, it's almost like he dies of a broken heart at the end, but I think we can mm-hmm. we can uh, shelve that for later in the discussion. So, yeah. But I, I was wondering if there was going to be – I guess the big climax of the novel is that fight. Because it finally kind of spurs him to, you know, the falling action is that he goes home and the resolution is his death. Mm-hmm. So the story's over. But it, it doesn't feel like, I don't know, it 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 needed to be bigger to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it should have been, it should have been bigger. But like I said, I'm, the last few chapters I got a little bit more than I did most of the book, but. Yeah. Well, there were so many things that were so huge that mm-hmm. were false, and this was the closest to reality, with the exception of the guy lying. That do you think that makes it bigger? Because he's going up for something for real, and and yeah. his sh- like his career to a certain extent is on the line. 
we and we've seen that plot before in in movies where somebody's pretending to be somebody and they're able to fake their way through it, but all of a sudden they're thrown into a situation where they actually have to do what they said they were able to do and oh my god, are they actually gonna like, you know, be able to do this and they end up winning in the end, or you know, like that or sometimes they lose in the end, but like that sort of thing. Which I can imagine might come from like uh, where I can see where maybe some tropes come from this work or other works of its time. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think I would agree that there are probably some caveats to calling it a modern novel, but I think it has certainly the makings of it. I almost want to call it a modern epic. You know, the first sort of the transition. Yeah. I, I guess like a mo- another modern epic would be like Ulysses, I guess, in the way it's laid out. But just like a transition from the ancient epics. We're to never where reading we are that. Now. Please. <laughs> yeah. Did I, I ever tell you my Ulysses my list, story? But, huh, no, you. Yeah, you told me. I know uh, that you don't like Ulysses, which is no, no. I, I, my friend loaned it to me because my, okay. my, my department chair was reading it. He, he was going to Ireland and England, and he and his wife. They were, he's like, we're gonna read this, and we're gonna do like so much every month. And we're gonna. And I said, all right. So I borrowed my friend's copy. I got about three chapters in. It sat on my shelf. It collect literally collected dust, and we were going to move. And I put a post-it on it, oh, no. and I wrote, here's your book back. I tried. I'm sorry. And I oh, mailed gosh. it back. <laughs> I tried. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, oh, uh, God, that book. Okay. Sorry. Well, we're yeah. Read Joyce, we'll read, like, Portrait of the Artist, the Young Man. I, that that okay. I can I agree with you on the epic point, though. Okay, yeah. It's almost, hey. like, it's, it's almost like it's the bridge between the two. It is, yeah. It's like I mentioned um, Mallory, Mortartur. And and some of the other Arthurian legends, which were epics, like these were the very medieval romances that he was um, that he was obsessed with, and they're all epic poems, right? Or, or in some form, I think you're right. I think it's a modern epic. It's like it's the it's it's the you know, one to the other, like it's almost like a a proto golden age comic book, like you know those ones that like are clearly pulling from something prior, but they're also like very very much in the what we would define as a modern comic. Yeah. So I, I like the part, how it has moments where there is some poetry in there. Mm-hmm. And there are so many references that I got just because I'm a classicist, which I really appreciated. Even though there were notes at the bottom, I thought, I don't need these footnotes. I know exactly what he's referencing right now. So, yeah, I would almost, I, I can go with the modern novel, but I, I almost want to think of it as like the first modern epic. I think that's what I would like to refer to it as. I thought that the the, because the preface begins with Cervantes himself dialoguing with a friend about how difficult this is to write and some of the advice his friend gives is like insert random Latin phrases to make the work appear scholarly Mm. provide footnotes and then like copy entire list of authors from a book and pass on his own and and things like that and I thought that was clever it was almost like metatextual in a way like and it also kind of set off that this was at least on some level a work of satire. So he was he had a comedic beat from the get go and and um, going back over that I'm like that is actually really clever and and funny and it's not always done well. Not, I mean I talk about the book but like people try to do that and Shakespeare tries to do it in the Taming of the Shrew and it it's like the biggest weakest part of the Taming of the Shrew is the whole the fact that the, the story we know about Kate and Petruchio. Is is the is inside of a framing device, 
of, of a play that these guys are doing. And, and in fact, Shakespeare abandons the framing device like midway through the play because I think even he realizes it, it's, it's, it's weak. Similar to Midsummer. Kind of. It's like the, these two guys have like basically tricked this guy into thinking he's so, – I haven't read – it's been a while since I read Taming. But they're forcing him to watch this play and like – but the entire play is a play within a play. The end of Midsummer is like um, they put on the play in the last act. But like with the most of what we know of the taming the shrew, we're supposed to believe it's a play within a play, and, and it's a framing device that doesn't work. Whereas in in Midsummer's, where they do a little bit of a play within a play and things, and they kind of go deep in the story, it does. So, but but then we've seen it like um, we've seen it done really well in film, and we like adaptation, uh, the Spike Jones movie, the Cage movie adaptation does it pretty well. The idea that you are talking about how you are putting this together, how you're writing it for comedic purposes, but then it's sometimes it just comes off as like really bad winking at the camera in, in, in other movies and books and things. So it's it's a skill. And I didn't even touch on Grant Morrison. So oh boy. Ugh. Okay. Well the next question is actually getting into a little bit the insanity mm-hmm. of Don Quixote here. Many people have been upset by the fact that he actually recovers his sanity right before dying. Whereas Sancho would like him to venture forth again and, and go on another adventure. So what are your thoughts? How do you feel about him regaining his sanity? And do you think there's any significance with it? Poor Sancho. Carrasco? Carrasio, I think, is the name of the Knight of the White Moon. Um, so he... I, I think it's like... He kills Don Quixote. Like, Don Quixote does not die from his wounds. No. But he, in effect, kills him. Because he said he said it was like, oh, what's the promise? He says, like, you know, if you lose, you're not going to be a knight errant, at least for a year. And if he wins, he gets everything. And and Quixote uses it, and he begs to die. He wants to die. He wants the white, the knight to kill him. Because he's like, I have no other reason to go on. And, and, and he, he's like, no, just go home. Go home and honor your promise. They head home, and they head home like they come across like a bunch of – and this happens a couple of times where they they retrace their steps back through the events that we just witnessed, and they seem to come across like some of the other um, people like that they saw. Like they see um, the Duke, the Duchess, and then the woman who um, – lo- Al- Alcidora? Like apparently dead, and Sancho pinches it. Like, so there's kind of – Sancho fakes the three – 3300 lashes and like there's all this thing and then they arrive home he's like you can tell he is essentially dead as far as the knight don quixote and if this is what this man was living for then he has uh really no reason to live i i think earlier i said earlier it hasn't been that long but i i did i used the phrase like he dies of a broken heart in a mm-hmm. sense and I think him regaining that sanity is exactly what that is. I mean, this is my interpretation of it, but if he's dying of a broken heart, it's like it's not that he's cured of his sanity. I mean, I guess in a technical sense he is, but it's like it the illusion drops and and it's very, very sad and he and 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 then he dies. I don't know. What do you think about that? 
I go back and forth because I almost want him to say he was so stubborn and consistent throughout the entire thing that I almost want him to end, you know, yeah. as this knight. But at the same time, I don't want him to end as a knight who has failed. Yeah, you almost want that, that Cyrano de Bergerac ending where he's like, my my panache, you know, and he's like, he's got that, that kind of outgoing line or the, the end of A Tale of Two Cities where it's like a far, far better thing I do, you know, like that sure. that there's a there's a, a little bit of hope, that little bit of triumph at the end, and there is none of that here. Yeah, it's 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 quite sad. Yeah, and even if he in regaining his sanity, I mean, I don't know how much time he really had to reflect on everything, but then he it's even sadder than dying insane because he can reflect on all of that and realize it was all for naught. Like all of this stuff that was going on, all of the things I went through, you know, how much was real, how much was unreal. So I almost just wish, yeah, for maybe it would be better. Of the two, they're both sad endings, I think, but perhaps of the two to just retain being Don Quixote, uh, the knight through and through. But as for why he recovers his sanity, I, I think you're right that sort of this emotional response with this broken heart that at the end he has, you know, he's failed his friend, he, he failed his quest and, and was beaten by this knight that it almost draws back the curtain and his mm. his mind <laughs> is now connected and, and the cloud has been passed over and, and now yeah. he sees all of it. So I think you have touched upon something that it is connected with that. But I just don't know if, unfortunately, you know how hilarious I found this novel. As I said before, it's just so tied with every piece that you're laughing you could also be crying to and i don't know that there's ever really a happy ending for don quixote because even if he were to live out his life if he were living and he were either sane or insane he would just be discontent discontented Mm -hmm. and it would also be sad and tragic for him so it's just a sad ending for don quixote he becomes if he lives out and he's if he never knights again, but he lives and he's sane, you're right. He becomes bitter. Yeah. He becomes he becomes the something out of a, of a 20th century novel. The bitter the bitter former athlete. Mm. Is it Flick Webb is the name of the the char- the ex basketball player in the John Updike Updike poem? And I think his name is Flick Webb, who who now pumps gas and uh, and it's just this kind of like the the person who is who's who's narrating the poem looks at him and all he can think of is like, you know, he was uh, winning state championships back. And I think he, the, the, the narrator feels really sorry for him. And that's how, what Don would be. What's I also found interesting is, is toward the end of his life and the, on his deathbed, he dictates his will. He, you know, he gives away his belongings and things, but he also mentions that his niece must not marry someone who knows about chivalry. So I mean, he's really it, there. There's Olivia is a little bit of bitterness there, or a sadness, or or a disappointment, an unfulfillment, or or something. But it's it's not. I live my best life, and you know, like the pyre, it's time to go out in a Viking funeral. You know, like it's not. You know, it's not that. It's this very sad. Um, and it, he just the only thing he just doesn't do. He doesn't kill himself, which. Mm. You know, we think of like I mentioned Shakespearean tragedy. That's like half. How many of Shakespeare's tragedies ended as suicide? But that's not the case here. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know what the, that's something to look up potentially is the role of suicide in knights. Uh. Because we talked about it previously when we did Caesar in regards to the samurai culture. Uh-huh. And of course Roman culture as well. But I don't know about in knights. Probably not, only because more than likely they were Roman Catholic, and I believe oh, suicide true. is a mortal sin. It is, yeah. Well, yeah, it is a sin. So, and I know as Arthur gets taken out by more, and Arthur and Mordred take each other out, but that's like a whole like there are consequences for your misdeeds in your past that you are now having to come pay. Because mm. like Mordred's his bastard son. And so there's that, like, you know, and, um, and which is interesting is that you read a lot of some of these romances, these medieval romances, and some of them are like, this is how knights should behave. And then some of them are like, look at all this sketchy, these sketchy things that you knights are doing. And these are the consequences. Like, you know, you're having affairs with the queen. You, you slept with your sister and, you know, like, and this is what's come of it. And like, you know, now you have to pay the ultimate price for it. And only one of you gets the grail because he's the most pure and virginal, you know, like, so if you think of, of some of those romances that Don Quixote got obsessed with. Continue with his insanity. We're going to talk about his insanity for a couple more questions. Mm -hmm. Do you actually think, would you consider him insane or do you think his behavior is a conscious choice? He's definitely deluded in some way, right? Mm. Like if they're delusions of grandeur or what. Um, I don't know. Um, we don't see a lot of him sane in the novel. Do we? I mean, does it, is it kind of like the novel start where he just wakes up and he's like, I'm going to do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of well... like, like we don't do, – do we have like – we don't have a moment of, of change for him. We don't have the – I think it was consistent behavior is just like he finally decided to go out because he had been reading all those novels. So yeah. at least he was involved in that world. But I think we just pick up with he's made his decision to go mm -hmm. out. So we kind of have to fill in the deep the back as, as we go through the, the backstory as we go. I don't know. I, I mean, he's clearly inspired <laughs> by what he read. And I don't know if... As he goes along, he gets so deep into it, he can't get out. Mm. So I don't know. I'm going to punt it back to you and, and see what you have to say because I, yeah. I, I can't tell. Yeah. I think there are certain episodes that clearly there's something amiss because, I mean, everyone knows the, the windmill episode that he mm. is jousting at giants, but that's mm -hmm. not what's happening there. And he does perceive... You know, certain things like the bowl, yeah. you know, the wash basin. And then when he falls down the well, or he mm -hmm. doesn't fall down, I guess he's lower down in a rope, and he spends that time down there. But at the same time, I feel like insane people, I could be wrong. I, I'm not, you know, up and up on all mental health issues. But I feel like there might be an issue, like they might not be able to understand a difference between right and wrong or morality. And there are clearly things when he's encountering or engaging these different events, he's got this very strong sense of morality. Whether he thinks someone, like the boy, for instance, you know, that was not being paid as he ought to be and he was being beaten, you know, he had the sense of that's obviously incorrect and you should 
you should give him what he deserves and please don't beat him again, things like that. So he has this sense. So uh, there's like hallucinations, but then there are moments of clarity. And I don't know. It it seems like a conscious choice or or insanity perhaps is a bad question because it's so drastic. You can't say one or the other. I think there are these moments where, oh, it seems like he's insane. But then there are these moments that he, I think he like peeks through behind the curtain and he actually realizes that it's not not real. I, I feel like I felt some of those moments. I was wondering that too, and then I was wondering if those moments where he, where it's almost like he's winking at us, are those more in the beginning and then as we go, he's clearly gone off the edge? But you're right about the morality because he is very much of the, you know, he has a moral code. Um, sociopaths do not. So he's not a serial killer. There you go. Um, I was trying to figure out yeah, it's, you're talking about like sociopaths, right? They have no yeah. sense of morale. There's no yeah. sense of – they're very, very detached. He's not that. He's not detached. Um, and the comedy, of course, the scene where you're describing, I remember that scene where he, he – he, I think he later finds this out. Like once they left, they tied the boy back up and beat him some more, mm-hmm. Like, yep. which is kind of funny on some level. It's a little twisted, but it's like, you know – like there's a there's a he's making matters worse aspect to a lot of at least from what I remember of the first part of the novel where like he would leave and he thought I did my job here and like uh, he, you know if we stuck around with those characters it was like you know they went back to beating the person or like he ruined something or whatever because he's mm. just nuts which I'm sure I've seen in cartoons and other comedies that sort of like wacko whack job guy who thinks, you know, you know, that kind of guy, like he thinks he, he did something really well for them or whatever. Somebody behind him is cleaning up the mess, Mm. you know? Yeah. Cause the guy's just an idiot. (laughs) And doesn't realize it. Yeah. 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 Uh. Just kind of like an illusion. So, but I mean, do, do you think he, do you think he is winking at the camera? Like in the second half of the novel when he's on his like last journeys or by then is he like, so bought into this idea of who he is. I feel like it's easier for him in the beginning. And I think he's reaching, Mm -hmm. there's some fatigue that he's encountering towards the end. And he starts to see some reality peek through at the end. I can't however um, the the issue is that you know that's my claim I don't have any evidence to provide you with off the top of my head so I apologize about not, have, not having a concrete example to prove my point I think as he's especially as he's leaving from his duel at the end yeah. and and he I mean he still wants he still wants Dulcinea's enchantment to go away and he's trying he's trying to like come up with these judgments for people. He thinks I should like, he judges a race where like one guy's bigger than the other. And he says to make it fair, you have to cut off 150 pounds of your own flesh or something. And they, they find out the punishment for some of the people who they had encountered earlier. And you do see a little more disillusionment over like kind of his, maybe this wasn't as good as he thought it was. Yeah, and I think the the Dulcinea enchantment is a good example of what I'm saying as well because it takes him a while to be convinced. He does not see the peasant girl as Dulcinea. Uh-huh. And so, but Sancho is playing on the fact that he believes him to be insane, so of course he can be convinced. So mm. I think there's a sense, like, not everything 
that he's jousting happens to be windmills or happens to be giants in his mind. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Huh? I don't know. Yeah. Why do you think then, if he is, you know, insane or perhaps is a choice, why is it so difficult for other characters to convince Don Quixote that the stories he reads are not real? Is it just his passion for them? You know, like you and I, we well, we talked we talked uh, in a in our previous episode about expanded universes and and if we wanted to extend that to fandom, and I'm not saying that fans of certain shows and books and movies believe that you know they are actually real, but there's a real emotional investment they have. Like uh, Harry Potter, for instance, right? Sure. Like people, people will go around ta- talking about how they are a Gryffindor or a Hufflepuff or a Ravenclaw or you know, or a Slytherin. When those houses don't exist, you know this this is stuff that's in fiction, but they like you know it's like it's almost like a personality trait to them. So there's like an emotional investment you make. So maybe it's like that. Maybe that's Cervantes is actually making a commentary about that about the emotional investment that we put in 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 the fiction, the legends that we have, the mm. the myths, the the romances. You know, like since he is commenting on that, so maybe that's what it is. And that, yeah. that's why that's why it's so hard for them to convince him that it's all because maybe he actually knows it's fiction, but he's just really emotionally invested in it. Which may get into yeah the commentary on the actual chivalry novel chivalry yeah. genre that sort of thing yeah yeah I was thinking I actually talked about this recently in my upcoming episode of Backworld the Oracle the fact that people have threatened the life of Tom King. Because, spoiler, I'm sorry, Catwoman and Batman did not get married. Yeah. And because his life had been threatened, he had to have a bodyguard at San Diego Comic-Con. And I'm like, you know, this poor guy, just leave him alone. It's just, I, of course I was upset. I would have loved to have seen them. But my life doesn't depend on it, and neither does his. So, my goodness. But that's that's just I guess that's a segue, but it connects to that. So yeah, potentially I think you know it's clear how many novels he had because they take that whole chapter sifting through the novels mm-hmm. of which ones are good, which ones should be destroyed, and and going in, in the comical scene of you know how they decide which are good and which are bad, and there's like someone outside the window catching them and burning them and things like that. I think it's clear how much he's dedicated his life to these. And so because it's so ingrained in his mind, I think it's just hard to erase it. And I would assume that he was not content with the person that he was before that. And so as a person, if you're not loving the life that you're leading, you find something else, you latch onto it, and it takes over your identity. So I can certainly see how uh, this happened to him. This is the first modern Eurocentric Euro novel because wow, every every current literary work written by a man is some middle aged white dude going through a personal crisis of oh. conscience and identity. This is is this his midlife crisis? I don't know. Is what I'm going through right now is this? You his, are? I don't know. I'll have to ask my therapist. But, like, no, is this, like, a midlife crisis? Like, I'm so unhappy with who I was that, like, you know, but instead of, you know, um, 
divorcing my wife uh, and and getting myself a Ferrari and a and a twenty two year old, I'm gonna set out on on crazy night adventures. <laughs> I don't know. That just sounded like that movie, American Beauty. Wasn't he going through it? Yeah, that's that's pretty much what I was. Yeah, that's what I was oh, getting at. Like, if you think of American, okay. Be- think of American Beauty. Like, like you yeah. know, that, that's he's probably run, like you know, is is Don Quixote like a midlife crisis? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm being slightly facetious, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah. Well, yeah, we don't know his back. We don't know his backstory. Like, yeah, as you said before, and, and midlife crisis is a like a current construct of like American psychology. So it's not like you know, Miguel Cervantes is going to know what the hell I'm talking about. But but there is that aspect to it. Like I'm so I am so unhappy with who I was that I'm going to just create a new persona and I'm going to be that person. Not unheard of. In regards to the books, then, as a as a nice transition, do you think that the curate is right to burn his books? Do you blame the books for being a bad influence on the reader? This could be taken as like a meta too, like you know, with real life stuff when people blame books and things like that. Uh, or do you think it's the reader's responsibility to know fact from fiction? Hey, don't burn books. Um, be <laughs> recycle. I but like I don't know. You see, like. I'm always the one who advocates for like, you know, it's the responsibility of the reader to know. And while I do think that, that works of, of culture have influences on people, I don't think they're to blame, you know, like in that, I think we've had this, we may have had this discussion before that I don't always think they're directly to blame. It's probably somewhere in the middle there. I don't know. It's like, they're so like judgmental parents about it, you know, like he's a child who is still who is you're too old for these things like that sort of thing that's what i'm getting out of that you know like like you're you're te- you're your 15 year old is still sleeping with a teddy bear and you're like oh. you know this you're too old for this and you throw it away and you're like be a man you know like that sort of thing like you know there there's almost that aspect to it and but uh, their intentions might be honest though like, or maybe they, they're acting out of, uh, on some level, they think they're acting out of concern. Yeah. I think they do love him. I think it does come from love. And clearly he has been misguided by the books. I don't know that they should be burnt necessarily. I mean, you could have clearly no. disposed of them in some way or hidden them away. And, you know, he wasn't really with them anyways for the rest of the novel <laughs> after that point. So there are other ways to potentially do it. But I, I think... You know, the question about is the reader responsible or is the book responsible is an interesting question, especially because this is something that I feel like my school deals with. You know, the library with YA novels especially that are, I feel like, to a good extent, are getting closer to realism. But with Mm -hmm. realism, there's real crap because the world is crap. Oh, yeah. Stuff that happens. But then then the question is... Mm, should these you know kids be reading this and so you know what's the what's the responsibility and what's what's the reader's responsibility what's the book's responsibility so don quixote though if he's not of a right mind is that responsibility is taken out of his hands but you can't necessarily 
blame the book. You know, I think the culture at the time was loving it, so they're just going with whatever the culture had. And for them, maybe that was the YA novel at the time, right? Showing the yeah. the chivalry and everything yeah. like that. But, but I think this could be one of those criticisms that Cervantes has that maybe everyone was becoming mindless masses and in, in reading these and having these ideas that just were not true anymore. Yeah, or that maybe that like there were poking fun at like he's poking fun at like this this ideal in a way i'm trying to express it in a way that like that like i think i think your 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 point about realism especially in fact i was just having this conversation today with somebody at work about young adult books and short stories and how real and how relatable they have become over the years yet you think of like how the hell am i going to teach this without getting a parent phone call you know like that sort of thing and I'm thinking, like, if if he's getting if what he is getting out of these chivalry, chivalric, chivalric romances is just these lofty ideals and things that Cervantes is like, you know, this doesn't work in our world. Like in our world, is like it's almost like he's saying this is too simple. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe his one of his criticisms is is that like these things that you are living your life by and these ideals and these rules are too simple for a world that's too more complex. Mm. I think that's what you were just saying in a sense. And that he's kind of pointing it out and showing kind of like kind of like pulling you out of the cave, dig into some Plato, mm. you know, and showing you the complexity of the world when you've just been seeing the shadows on the wall. So, mm-hmm. so I don't know. Maybe, maybe I mean that maybe that's what Quixote, not Quixote, Cervantes was was interested in doing on some level yeah. in, in satirizing chivalry and, and and knights and romances. Yeah. Do you think that he convinced any of his readership to not read those sorts of fantasies anymore in writing this novel? <sighs> I don't know, and I never really looked up to what the what the reaction to the book was. I don't know if like what the like if it, if they stayed popular after this, or if it's one of those things where like you know now this now we can kind of make fun of them for you know we can make fun of the the things that we were reading like oh look yeah these are kind of funny let's make fun of them now because that does happen in our culture from time to time mm-hmm. like the the everybody falls in love with a work or a movie or something and then the either the criticism or the satire of it come out and they're like we kind of have a laugh with it as well so maybe that's what it was. It's just, like, which I guess is the point of satire, but it's just funny that how popular this was. And so yeah. they're so engrossed in the fan, you know, in the fantasy. And was his purpose to get them to stop reading fantasy, which was, in a sense, get them to stop reading his novel? It's, uh, maybe, but satire is also like a criticism. Mm. So maybe he's trying to get them to think critically about it on some level. Like something, I think I said this, might have said this before we went on the air was that I saw a satire and a satirical criticism of the feudalistic class system in part of this, especially when we get to the sections of part two with the Duke and the Duchess and how they send him out. Like, they are really abusive. Mm. If you think of, like, all the things they do to him and the things they, they like, they're the one, aren't they the ones who basically give Sancho Panza the island to govern and... Um, and it's this whole ruse, this whole joke, and it's like it, it's because these because these two guys are peasants, I believe, right? In their original state, neither of them are rich, right? 
or or of nobility. Mm. I know Sancho Panza isn't. Yeah. In any way, like you know, so here's these, but they're they're lower, they're lower on the rung than the Duke and Duchess, and it, I was thinking about that earlier today, and I'm like, maybe he's getting at that, and maybe I'm grasping at straws here, but I but I see this sort of criticism of the society of the time and the when the social structure of the time, that was it was still we're talking like late medieval Renaissance era, and feudalism is still very much in effect. You know, there are parts of feudalism that survived all the way to the French Revolution, obviously, right? So, and he's he's taking, maybe he's like showing, I don't think his intent is to make you like the Duke or Duchess. I think they're supposed to be almost a villainous. And it's almost yeah. in the way that like, and this is a trope that we've seen where like we see the way that the rich treat the poor or the rulers treat the peasants or whoever. And we see that through a lot of different literature beyond just Don Quixote down the line into our modern day. I mean, like, think of how much of Fitzgerald in The Great Gatsby is saying, look at these, look at these, um, you know, look at, look at all these rich people, look at all these a-holes, like, look at these people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how much of that book really is that? Like, you can really look at it and see, like, just these awful, awful people. And um, there's a little bit uh, subtle and not so subtle in in, in Catcher, and, and there's there's um, there's other you know Marx was criticizing it outright in his works, and and there's other criticisms of other of other people in um, I mean even Shakespeare, a contemporary of, of Cervantes at least in time, would would have plays like Twelfth Night, where all the rich people are acting like completely nuts. And the servants take it upon themselves, like they mess with Mercutio, not Mercutio, uh, Malvolio, and um, and it's this whole thing where like the whole power structure, the hierarchy is all disruptive and flipped around and turned upside down, and and so and, and he's kind of he's kind of poking a little fun at the the rich who are coming to see the the, the play anyway. Mm. Um, so and maybe he is saying that, and like that's like I said, I mentioned Monty Python. The Duke and the Duchess and some of – if he's making some political commentary in here and satire in here, it reminded me of my favorite scene of Monty Python on the Holy Grail, which is the slop collector scene. Are you familiar with the scene? Is it the guy who's going around saying bring out your dead? No. It's the scene with the two peasants in the field and King Arthur comes up to him and asks him where they live in that castle. And he says no one lives there. He's like, what do you mean? No, who's your king? We don't have a king. You don't have a king. Or we're an autonomous collective. And they get into this debate over like the nature of power. Because he's like, how did you become king? And he's like, you know, the lady of the lake held that Excalibur. And he says, like, he's the line, you know, like, strange limit women lying in ponds is no basis for a system of government. So they have this whole debate over the 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 um, the nature of, of politics and power. And and all of this, it ends with with with. With King Arthur getting into a scuffle with one of them going, and the, uh, the peasants and this peasant going, help, help, I'm being repressed, and King Arthur going, bloody peasant! And he's like, see? Um, but the the thing that, that that that's so, like, that even brings it up to an even better level in that scene, and I'm going to curse here, <gasps> is that the entire time they're having this debate, these two peasants in the field are literally piling cow and it's like this is brilliant satire, and and I, I got I like I read did this is where where when I could when I, either when I was talking to Cliff, or I was um 
you know, actually reading it and when I could pick up on those notes and stuff. And I was like, I could see a little bit of that here when I got through the whole Duke Duchess thing. Cause that's the stuff that I, I did actually attach to because I was like, what are these people doing to him? They're like, <laughs> I was, I really hated those two. And that whole thing of like all these, just these awful people. I was like, I wanted them to get like, I, I wanted them to get killed. I was like, they're terrible. I loved the fact, though, that I think they imagined Sancho was going to fail in his governorship, but he was actually pretty successful. Yeah, to the point where he has a legacy. Yeah. and Like his laws are still in place years yeah, later or something. Yeah, he's answering very intelligently, which mm-hmm. is really, like, his character is a conundrum for me sometimes because Don Quixote is pretty reliable. But Sancho is like, he seems dumb in the beginning, and... The, he like gets things confused, words are confused, and the, and you'll have to note in like the translation there'll be like a little marker of like he meant to say this. Uh, well, and Don Quixote also you know corrects him, and then also he switches his wife's name around, which the note would say that Cervantes forgot because she would like Teresa would have multiple mm-hmm. names, but I thought it actually makes sense if Sancho's forgetting his wife's name, and he would have those crazy. Uh, not anecdote like parables all strung together yeah sayings but then he's super wise about things he's such an interesting character yeah and and he uh, one of the funnier bits of it and this is um this is so this is almost like a jonathan swift type of thing here the whole thing where he like he loves the fact that he's governor at first because he loves the idea that i'm gonna get paid and but he he can't eat because they they won't let him eat anything. Yeah, and I found that I found funny because it's so like it's it's it, I could almost see this like in Gulliver's Travels, you know, like like one of those later works or something, or in uh, you know seen this movies where like you know I, I have to you know like where you have to like learn all the little things about becoming a debutante and you know and it's like when do I actually just get to eat like you know now I'm thinking if she's the man, but um. <laughs> I know you've mentioned so That's many things, uh, but yeah, I love that. I did find that scene very funny because I was just like this whole thing, and then and then you're right. He 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 gets tired of being governor, and they overthrow him essentially, um, or they just stop the joke. But but he's like really good at making decisions, like the 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 day to day bureaucratic logistical things about being in a position of power. He actually is really good at. Which is ironic, you know, considering they, you know, it was never supposed to happen that way. Why do you think Sancho sticks with him throughout his adventures, even though he endures so much punishment and often gets the punishment that Don Quixote deserves? I think they think of each other as friends, you know? Maybe not at first, but like, especially by the end of the first adventure, like Sancho, Sancho in like in the first half, I think is supposed to be kind of the more rational one of the two. And he and he's like playing off that, but by the end of the first part, when they finally go back home again, he's kind of bought into it a little more. I got the sense that like all of a sudden, like he's saying things that Dante Quixote would say, and I think they just by the end, I think he he's he's just a very good friend. So he wants his on some level, he's staying with him out of concern for his friend. Um, I wonder if he's also avoiding retribution from his wife. Uh, yeah, sure. She's she's a little annoyed that he's not making money. Of course. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's the only thing I can really come up with. It's just a really good friendship. Yeah, I think there certainly is that friendship there. I think also 
it's an adventure that you know there's escapism yeah. real life escapism for Sancho that he's able to get away from the humdrum life that he has and, and go on these fantastical yeah. adventures with with Don Quixote and I think he probably knows that it's not real but the fact that you if anyone offers you something like that you know a governorship of an island mm. and you think oh, I can I can better myself and I can step up in class then I think he's going to jump at that at that situation so I think there's sort of class uh, yeah. commentary in this as well mm-hmm. yeah there's a cl- be careful what you wish for aspect to the yeah. to his jumping in class yeah but on some level maybe he's like the Samwise to oh to Frodo, yeah. even though, even because I mean, because Frodo does go a little bit insane. He doesn't go all. He doesn't go full uh, Gollum, but yeah, uh, but he almost does. Mm-hmm. But you know, Sam's there to kind of keep him there. You know, keep help him keep his grip. And I think on some level that's what that he's. But yeah, I think you're right that that the the lure of the um, the promise also is helping and the adventure. Like again, their lives aren't exactly you know the most exciting things in the world, right? Mm, so. No. Yep. We, I think you're starting to get at it when you're talking about the Duke and the Duchess, but why do you think people have such fun and, and desire to exploit Don Quixote's madness for their own amusement? Because they are awful, awful people. <laughs> and this is what the rich do. Mm. I just, I like, like we, we, we still have this problem in our own culture where there's a certain segment of our culture that, worships or covets these billionaires and they like they want to model themselves after them and they hold them up as these sort of heroes not realizing that like they're making their money and they've and this goes back further than just the 21st century you go back to like the 19th century and you have entire countries making their fame and their money off of the backs of those they exploited and i don't know i mean this is just my maybe my personal politics are clouding this but i look at the duke and the duchess and they're just they're they're using these these people who they don't even think of people for their own amusement you know like you know they they would they would if they could have them fight out with an actual lion like this is ancient Rome or something they do that because they they you know they find it they find it funny and and we see that we see that through history where you have a group in power and a group that's under their that's under their power or oppressed by their power and we see these people use that for their amusement and it's just it's so awful. But I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm jumping too far. Maybe I'm just I'm taking that a little too far. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> well, I think Cervantes wasn't talking about what I'm about to say, but I think there's certainly something to be said about mental health issues and how people react to it. Because modern, you know, if we were to take this and this were in a modern setting, it would be awful and we'd be absolutely trying to help Don Quixote. But for them, they don't see that. They think that it's just something that they can potentially have fun with. And so it's just this idea almost of, you know, let's make fun of something that we don't understand. Normally it's we feel yeah. we don't understand. But, yeah, I think it's just they see they see a plaything potentially. Uh, he's almost like a child, so let's just play around with him. What's the harm? Um, he'll be able to bounce right back because, of course, he's insane. 
So, and, and, you know, I think it potentially reflects on their own lives as well. And you were talking about, you know, rich people are terrible. And I was just watching something, actually, like an hour before this. And I think the guy said something about rich people are, I can't remember, like idiots or something like that. And then the girl said, you know, once you start, uh, once you, how did she say this? It was something about... Like, once you've bought everything you want, you start buying other stuff. So I think, to a se- in a sense, the Duke and the Duchess have everything they want. And so mm-hmm. let's, we've got this play thing now. So they're almost like yeah. cats. Cats with the little mouse that they're playing with. But, yeah, yeah it is, it's pretty sad. And I think it just also shows the intolerance, potentially, of that society. So you're talking about how the modern, like, exa- like a modern take on this... And how it's more about the concern for the person than making fun of them. So it's kind of like Big Fish. <gasps> where, the where fishy Don, fish? Yeah, like where Don – so Albert Finney's character and Ewan McGregor in, McGregor in the in the flashbacks, um, whose name in the, the character name is escaping me. Edwin Bloom is the Don Quixote and his son – uh, Billy Crudup is is maybe is the is the one of the people who's trying because he's like he's always in denial of his father's stories like you know the whole thing is like you know his father has these crazy stories about what happened and they're all exaggerations to the truth. Of course, it took me until I was teaching the Odyssey this year to realize how much of um, Big Fish is the Odyssey mm-hmm. as well. But um, is it's how much like. Uh, I'm getting back to Homer, but how much Edwin is Odysseus <laughs> and, and Billy Crudup's character, who, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, is uh, Telemachus. Um, but uh, but I don't know. Maybe that that's it's something like that. Maybe maybe there is an influence on that, like you know, that kind of crazy, exaggerating. You know, the tall tales, the 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 delusions of grandeur. You know, we see that in in modern works as well. Mm. Yep. Uh, so my final question, I felt like for me, anyways was a very important question. And it's mm-hmm. why we don't ever actually meet Dulcinea in the novel. What are your why why do you think this happens? His his quest is unfulfilled to meet her. Does she exist? She does. But I can't remember what her name is. She's like a barmaid at a tavern or something. Okay. I don't know. Is is she do we is it necessary for him to, to for us to actually meet her? Like, if he were to actually meet her, and finally he he reaches his, his Dulcinea, mm. and is it like one of those romantic comedies where the nerdy guy has, like, the, the cheerleader on the pedestal when he meets her? She's like, you know, I'm not who you say I am. Would it, like, would it have been that, or am I thinking in too modern of a context because I've watched too many teen movies in my life? Mm. I might be. I don't know. It It is odd because, like, by the time they cure her of her illness, or her enchantment. Him? Oh, her. Okay, yep. The, the 3,300 lashes. I don't know. I think the story shifted so much on him that it's she exists more almost like, almost like she exists more of an, as an idea than she does an actual person even though that actual person exists i feel like the novel could have had a happier ending had he met her before his heartbreak or had there been some sort of uh if if she had been there at the end and and he had met her and then a whole thing happened i think it would have been worth it for him and he could have died 
happier and less brokenhearted. So I, I don't know if it's just to further push the fact that this whole thing was a fantasy in his mind. And so, of course, he's not going to get the girl because this is false. Mm-hmm. But it just makes it all the more tragic. And if we're talking about him poking fun at criticizing or satirizing uh, chivalry and this contest of chivalry where the idea that a virginal beauty to use the turn of phrase was idealized, put on a pedestal. Mm. There was like a purity to that or something that like, you know, maybe he, maybe he is, (laughs) maybe is he saying like, Hey, this woman doesn't exist. You know, like the fair maiden is a fairy tale. You know, is he saying that like, thematically mm. by never by never actually having us meet Dulcinea because she doesn't I mean in a sense she doesn't ex- exist but in the in the way that Don Quixote thinks of her she doesn't exist yeah I don't like know. I said I'm it grasping at me. a lot of things here because yeah. I'm, I'm going back through some of my notes as we're as we're talking and I I and there's so much of this book that yeah, yeah it was it was the one thing that actually really frustrated me because i really wanted her or him to see her for real Mm -hmm. for real and i think you know there's sort of been that windmill-esque nature about it because he would have been envisioning something that wasn't true but i think there could have been a sweetness to it as well and i feel like in adaptations that i've watched he has actually encountered dulcinea Mm -hmm. so i was waiting for it to happen and it didn't happen but i think even in you know the man from la mancha uh, I think she appears in there, and I think also in the Wishbone adaptation. So I don't know what happened. Maybe it's in the fake part two of Don Quixote mm-hmm. that he meets her. I thought it was interesting how like mad he was getting, Cervantes was getting in his writing about sure. the fake part two. Well, you can imagine. Like, I mean, plagiarist. I yeah. mean, which is I can't even imagine. It was so interesting to. Like find out about that both. It's in the, the first movie. retcon. It was crazy. The first retcon. There you go. That's all we needed. Well, those are all the thoughts and questions I have about. I mean, there are so many. I'd I'd love to keep going. But do you have any other further thoughts before we go on? Whether you would recommend it or teach it. In chapter sixty-one and sixty-two of part two, he goes to Barcelona, and now they they. There's like this cursed bust that tells fortunes, and it's another joke played on him. But he's like famous now because of the and novel. so yes, yeah, so, yeah. So like, can we can we get a little? I mean, not in just the Barcelona chapter, but in general. Like, by the time we hit the later chapters, so sixty one, there's seventy four chapters in part two. So sixty one is like the last like third or so, um, or quarter of the book. But by the time we get to the end of the book. He's like known. I mean, people like he has to tell people who he is because they don't necessarily recognize him on site. But like the legend of Don Quixote has spread, and there are people claiming they saw Don Quixote, but it was not Don. You know, so I mean, what is his like? I don't know. What do you think the commentary on that is, or like, what do you think the point of that is that he's actually gained fame? Maybe not fortune, maybe not Dulcinea, but yeah. he's gained some sort of fame. I think it adds to his delusion. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, wow, I'm well known. I'm actually doing it. So it fuels, I think, his adventures for a little bit longer, whereas potentially it could have ended you know, in part one. It could have mm-hmm. stopped. But the fact that he's well known, I think, 
gives him more incentive to keep moving and yeah. I think a positive aspect. So it's not all tragic that, ah, but there are people that have a begrudging respect potentially of him. So he arrives at Barcelona, he enters and people like receive him really well. They go on the boat. I'm looking at my notes. So I'm kind of reading from my notes here. And then the night of the moon challenges him and he has his great, you know, he has the duel that he loses his whatever. I was getting a, I don't know if he's a Christ figure. Cause I don't know if that's what we're going for here, but I was, I was wondering if, if Cervantes was making allusions to, or if I'm just stretching here. In what way? exactly? I don't know. See, like I saw the chapter Barcelona. And I thought of Palm Sunday. I was like, is is he is he oh, making it directly you know like entering in the yeah sure. and it's uh, yeah. et cetera and like is he is he just doing a one off gag of that or is is but Don then is he Quixote, rejected later on uh, no he his next he um they go on the boat he's treated well and then then um later on when they're walking along the shore the night of the moon approaches and then he has the duel mm. so it's right before he loses everything I see. But I don't know if, if if that's Cervantes or if that's just me reading into it because I was trying to look for something in it. Because um, I don't think he's necessarily a Christ figure. You know, usually Christ figures have like a sort of martyrdom attached to them, mm. or or a sacrifice or something that they make. I guess we could say that, but but it's more comedic here than it is like tragic. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking. Um, I still think I. Still think Sancho's governorship is one of the funnier things in the book. Mm. I, I do, I do find it amusing how he actually betters the lives of a number of people mm-hmm. accidentally. Like he ends up reuniting people with their daughters and wives and stuff when that was never his mission. He just it happens all by like crazy coincidence, and because the book is so outlandish, it earns the right to have those crazy coincidences work. You know, like there are certain coincidences, like where, like you know, there are this guy with there was this guy Ricote, um, and he's reunited with his daughter, mm-hmm. who was disguised as a male sailor. And like in a million years, like in a million stories we've seen or episodes of television, you see that and it's a total coincidence. And like you're like, that is so unrealistic. Oh my god, that's so stupid. But in this, in the context of this book, where you have these like crazy adventures of this guy, and all of this, like you know, people trying to fake him out on things and everything it's like it it fits in so well with it mm-hmm. it's like it's it's earned the right to be like fantastical and absurd in places yeah well would you recommend it would you teach it not in high school okay um i i don't i don't think that like i said going back to the point i was making about my my students i see more and more where the criticism of the canon comes in because they don't connect with books like this all the time and a lot of times it is because they don't understand them or they have no context for them and satire is hard um if we're looking at this on on a satirical level as well satire is hard when you don't have the context for it or you don't understand like the story behind it or the subject matter it's it's satirizing and um you know i think a lot of my students would struggle with this and i and i see how they would and this is where i'm like okay this is where i need to expand like what i teach um, to f- help them find what works for them so that they can feel more confident and then they can study the things in literature they need to study, like the, the, the all the concepts and things as opposed to the content of the book. Mm. Um, 
even in an AP level class, um, I don't think I could assign this any. I mean, it's too long. Um, so to do, you could spend an enormous amount of time on this. You could almost do like a whole month or two. I could see where it might be useful to pull excerpts from this. I could see this popping up on an AP test for one of the passages. Um, it gets n- noted in a number of the um, literary essay prompts. But I see where this is useful in, in college. This is not anything I'd throw out and, and, and say that you don't really need this. But I think there, for the high school student, I think there's more modern stuff that does similar things. And uh, I think that would work better. Okay. I recommend it, first of all. And I would teach a portion. I would love to do like a comparison with this and the Aeneid in my AP class or in advanced class. And I think that would just be interesting to see what comparisons they could potentially find, both in the style, the language rhetorical devices used as well as the the characters and adventures they go on so i think that's how i would use it but okay okay. well it's time for a bazillion emails we have some serious feedback because we've been gone for we took a month off and the episode prior to drama was our um expanded universe special you know the the novelizations expanded universe special which Hits the heart of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Um, so I'm going to read the first email here, and it's from Gene Hendricks, who is uh, one of our big guys over at the our, our, our big guns over at the um, over at TTF. He um, he helps run the Twitter feed, by the way. Is a huge supporter of the show. He has the Hammer Strikes uh, blog and sometimes podcast, and uh, is an all around great guy. Um, I, I met him last. Uh, we we met face to face last year in, in Baltimore, so it was really cool. Um, anyway, so I'm going to get into this. This is about episode 20, and he said, "I just listened to episode 20, and I found it to be a very interesting discussion. I agree with Stella that all the important information for a movie should be on the screen, and you shouldn't be required to read a book to understand what is going on. That would be my major problem with both 2001." And The Force Awakens. A good novelization, however, will take that story from the screen and fill in the gaps. It might not answer all the questions, but it can give you more information. For instance, sorry, for example, in Star Trek The Motion Picture, two officers are killed in a transporter accident. Kirk and Rand are visibly upset by this. In the movie, we know that one was the Vulcan science officer that we had met earlier. In the novelization, we learn that the other was Kirk's ex-wife, and this makes his reaction all the more understandable. The movie is perfectly fine without knowing that, but adding that detail in makes it all the more powerful. I might have repeated myself. Uh, Anyway, obviously this would be one of my recommendations, but I also think the novelization of Star Wars is well worth it. Um, I own the novelization of Star Wars. I've just never read it. I have to get to it. Um, Anyway, getting back into his email here. As to expanded universes, they can be overwhelming, especially if you don't get under the ground floor. I would argue, though, that even the Star Wars novels are pretty much standalone like the Star Trek ones. Yes, you'll get a series every now and then, but for the most part, they can be picked up in any order without much problem. Like novelizations, they do shade in some things for the characters, but unlike the former, they tell wholly new stories. Some work and some don't, but overall I would say that the Star Trek and Star 
Wars novels are on the whole good reads. The main thing I would say is to find what characters slash eras that you're interested in and dive in there. My starting recommendations would be The Lost Years, like Tom, The Rift and Q Squared for Star Trek, and the Tales from books, the Rogue Squadron books, and the Thrawn trilogy, like both of you, for Star Wars. Comic adaptations are a whole different ballgame, so I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole in this email, which is already long enough. Keep up the great work. I'm looking forward to whatever habit you come up with for episode 30's topic. Cool. Uh, yeah, I think we left comic adaptations off on purpose because that's like that's a whole other podcast episode of another show, you know. So, anything to say about what Gene had there? I don't, but I like hearing. You know, Stella's right. I agree with Stella. I like that. I am trying to think. Um, I would. The the tough thing about the Star Trek novels more than the Star Wars novels is that a lot of them, like the ones we recommended, have been out of print. So you're you just need to go to your library or um, scour the secondary market. Um, but you should always support your local used bookstore. But there are used bookstores that probably have like a wall of Star Trek novels somewhere. So there's one near us that does. Um, I've picked up a few. Uh, and eBay is always good for that, but shop local. Uh, continuing along, we have one um, from across the pond, and Andrew Leyland, Sir Andrew Leyland, he of Hey Kids Comics, The Palace of Glittering Delights, Listen to the Prophets, and the Fantastic Cast. Um, dearest TP and SMB, Required reading, I'm not going to read this in an accent because I can't do Andy's accent. Um, required reading is always is always fun to listen that is normally far too highbrow for my guns, girls, and explosion sensibilities. However, with your recent episode delving into novelizations and EUs, I was both annoyed and gloriously entertained. Annoyed because there goes my episode of Palace of Glittering Delights about the same topic. And he could still do the episode. It's fine. Entertained because this was a jolly fine show. Um, I will keep my comments to what you discussed and not mention the plethora of Doctor Who EU novels. I'm sure Shag would have something to say about those too, right? Nor the A-Team novel that expanded upon what Hannibal and company got up to in Numb, although I will mention that novelizations got me into reading, and that's a good thing, right? When I were a lad, and this were all fields, my school library... And I'm sure he walked through those fields both ways in the snow. My school library had shelves full of Target Doctor Who novels. Ask Shagalicious about them. Um, and I was attracted by the Chris. Did he actually say Shagalicious? Yeah, it says in, it says oh in parentheses, God. ask Shagalicious about it. <laughs> I'm getting that name trending. That's hilarious. And I was attracted by the Chris, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, Achilles uh, covers. He also did the covers of the James Blish Star Trek adaptations. I've seen those, and they're they're gorgeous. Um, and thus, I discovered reading proper books. Well, I'd, after I devoured the Famous Five and the Enchanted Wood series, uh, the Trek ones were particularly interest, entertaining as Blish was writing them from scripts, as Tom mentioned, that underwent significant rewrites, resulting in a lot of fascinating differences between the episodes uh, from the episodes we're familiar with. With Trek, the ability to dip in and out was in its favor, and I enjoyed anything by Diane Duane, particularly The Wounded Sky, Anne Crispin, particularly Yesterday's Sun, and Judith and Gar Reeves Stevens, particularly Prime Directive. Um, I'll second Prime Directive. I remember reading that about 20 years ago, and I still remember that being really, really good. 
Dwayne specifically throws a lot of hard science, making Trek more science fiction than ever, but also revels in prose, being able to describe the most magnificent magnificent aliens that a TV budget could never afford. My favorites were alien, an alien dolphin that practically swam through the Enterprise and a Horta crew member who boasts that Kirk is friends with his mom. As for novelizations, I heartily recommend Vonda McIntyre's trilogy of Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, and The Voyage Home. Wrath of Khan developed the characters significantly, especially the staff of Space Station Regular One, so we actually give a damn when Khan kills them all. She also establishes a relationship between David and Savick that carries on into the novel for The Search for Spock, as well as showing us where Carol Marcus went and David when David and Savick were assigned to the USS Grissom. Sulu's background as captain of the Excelsior is given more space as well. There are at least four chapters and 100 pages of the search for Spock before the story of that film even begins. Um, credit also to J.M. Dillard, who manages to make the novel of Star Trek V so good that if you read it first, it makes you think you were going to get a good film. Um, J.M. Dillard wrote the Lost Years novel that Gene mentioned, and um, I do not have the Star Trek V adaptation uh, yet. I may track it down because i have the other five and i want it and they're in a pile and i want to read through them uh, that's just me riffing on andy here we go um revenge of the sith getting into star wars revenge of the sith is indeed a brilliant novel feeling more like the film adapted it rather than vice versa matthew stover delves deeply into obi-wan and anakin's thoughts which helps immeasurably Stover also wrote Shatterpoint, an incredibly dark Star Wars novel focusing on Mace Window and, and essentially rewriting the Heart of Darkness for the galaxy far, far away. Hmm. By and large, though, I agree that the aggressive continuity of the Star Wars EU works to keep me away rather than bring me in. Although I have read most of Zahn's books and I'm a sucker for any prequel set stories as I think writers have more to play with in that era. All told, this was a great episode. You clearly know your stuff and are witty and engaging. I wish I had teachers like you at school. Oh, best wishes, Andy. I mean, the best thing he said right there was Shagalicious. Yeah. Next up is from Robert Wood. He says, Dear Tom and Stella, welcome back from your well-earned break for another great episode. I enjoyed but was a little anxious about your coverage of novelizations, but glad to hear that the big two I hoped would be mentioned were. I've never read the comic of No Man's Land, and the novel is the only thing I have to go by, but I utterly loved it. No Man's Land is such an amazing piece of work. I actually went online to look up Hunter's books because I so fell in love with her, but was disappointed to find out that she is so widely not <laughs> liked, I guess, or loved by fandom. As an aside from Stella, you can start <laughs> listening to Backroll <laughs> Oracle's coverage of No Man's Land starting this month in August you know, All right. for five parts, so for five months. But anyways, back to this. Likewise, The Death and Life of Superman is also a masterpiece. I'm a little jealous of Tom, though, for having Nightfall, as I don't have that one and I'm hoping to get it and read soon. And if I may interject, I'm actually in the middle of rereading Nightfall right now and um, I do recommend tracking it down. Um, I have the it was reprinted back in 2004 and Greg Rucka wrote an intro, like a new intro to it. It's really good, and I'm reading it, and the entire time in my head is the animated series as if they did Nightfall. Like, I can hear the Shirley Walker score, and I can hear Kevin Conroy's voice, and I can hear Hamill's Joker, and, and like, it's, it's a really good adaptation of, of the comic. 
Superman was far superior to Kingdom Come, which I also have, and with No Man's Land, they just represent a great one-two punch for comic novels. I can't wait to also try some of the other DC novels in written word that were also put out by Graphic Audio that I enjoyed, Crisis on Infinite Earths and Trail of Time in particular. I can't really disagree, though, with the negative opinions on movie novelizations. The last couple I have read were really disappointing. I always hoped they would add more. Gremlins is one that sounds like an absolutely bonkers and promising book that I really want to get. I had like uh, the, I had like the, the not maybe it was the young readers version of that when I was a kid. Like you know how sometimes with novelizations they'll put out like the full novel, but then they'll put like a, like a elementary grades version of it so it's a little easier to read. And I had a Gremlins book that I bought from the Scholastic Book Club in like the second grade or something. So I read that long before I actually saw the movie. Godzilla 2014 is a good example of what I think you meant by copy and paste. Godzilla didn't add anything and actually helped me dislike the film more and more. Every time I watch that film, I like it less and think the pacing helped me realize just how terrible and rushed it is. Novelizations really ought to at least try to expand beyond the books. For this month's question, I'm going to recall my days in high school a bit and what I feel may be a good question, especially for teachers. Author biographies. While taking our semester focus on literature, we always had a small focus on the author to help understand, but recently I've been wondering, was it enough? Although you didn't recommend any in episode 10, other than a poet's biography chosen by Stella. Or maybe he oh, was thinking was Pushkin. of Pushkin. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to think of what I did. Gosh, Pushkin, still have that book. Do you feel that as readers we can only enhance our understanding by also reading up extensively on the author? past what time allows in school and recommend doing so do you make it a point to also read up on certain authors yourselves certainly personal interests can come into play but lately i've been considering if i ought to look into comprehensive biographies on people like jack london ernest hemingway and the mystery of william shakespeare london and hemingway seems to me to represent the adventurous side and the most likely people that learning about could be fun but also educational and tragic on the other side what about authors we may not like I have a complicated relationship with Robert A. Heinlein's novels, but if I were to read the two-tone biography about him, couldn't I better learn where he's coming from and potentially find a reason why certain criticisms, no matter how unlikely, is actually subjective and it's not as problematic as I thought? I know it's a little rambling, but I've been giving this issue a lot of thought lately, so please share how the two of you approach author biographies outside of the classroom. I'm dying to hear. Your scholastic book buddy, Robert. <laughs> I also want to point out that uh, Robert was nice enough to share a link to a treasure trove of old classics illustrated comics. Um, and if, if those of you in the audience, if you're unfamiliar with those, those were a series of comics back a long time ago. That um, and I think they were they've been brought back here and there over the years that would adapt in comic book form uh, like condensed versions of great works of literature. And he says he plans on going through the books that correspond to books that we've covered. I'm, I I followed the link and kind of glanced at it. I might take a little longer look to see if any of them are going to be kind of like fun to read. Joe, I guess we want to let's tackle this question. Yeah, I think it might depend on the author for me. In, in some cases, like F. Scott Fitzgerald, I think knowing a little bit about his background 
I don't think it takes away from or, or, or adds or takes away from the great Gatsby if you don't know his background, but knowing who he is, where he came from and like the background of everything and the context of everything, I think it enhances it on some level. It kind of gives you a deeper understanding to it. I don't know that you need to know that JD Salinger was, was like a total recluse for the majority of his adult life after, um, after publishing, you know, the novels he did to, to really appreciate the catcher in the rye. I'm thinking more modern authors like, you know, Harper Lee, there's some biographical information that does kind of add to it. You see a little bit of the connections and things. Um, I would say that like, I'm not a huge fan of Jack Kerouac's, but knowing Jack Kerouac's backstory makes on the road, make sense a little more like you see, you see that connection and um, like Hunter Thompson, for instance, Ken Casey, some of these authors, I think also inform their fiction, their lives inform their fiction. So I think, I think that like, uh, but sometimes I'm the type of person who like, I will read the work. And then if, then I'm like, what is this? What is this person like? Or what else have they read and read? I mean, written. And then I will get into the biography of the author or like the, the background of the author, um, because I'm just interested in knowing more about the person as well as, as what else they've read. So sometimes I usually end up reading something by them first and then I go in that direction. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think I necessarily look at the person first and then go to the work. I like to let the work almost speak for itself as mm-hmm. to who the author is. And if it's super engaging, then I like to learn more about it and see where the author is coming from and, and you know maybe how much authenticity this author has lent to the, the book or something like that. You know, an extreme example would be Stig Larson and his Girl with a Dragon Tattoo series, uh-huh. his Elizabeth Salander series. And I actually, I really like Elizabeth as a character, though I recognize how extreme she is. But there are some, and I, I enjoy the books. They, um, there are some, some tough books sometimes to read with, like, not only with content, but also, like, the, they're very... Um, I feel like sometimes they're dense, the first one anyways. Mm-hmm. So there's also some really dark and disturbing stuff that goes on, and you kind of wonder to yourself what you know what's happened that this guy is coming up with this. <laughs> and in researching, though, you, you find out you know about his backstory. So I think in learning that it does give you a different lens of – it's not all – you know, art does not always replicate yeah. – life but in certain circumstances it does and i think it gives you a better sense of who it is but yeah i don't necessarily invest myself too much in the author which i guess is a shame because you do want to treat them more than just this hand that's writing these words you kind of do want to respect those those people but yeah unless it's someone that i'm really i really like this particular like maybe flannery o'connor would be someone that i would go out because i love her short stories so i would Mm -hmm. go out and try to find out more about her unless it's someone that i have a real passion about it and maybe I have questions about where this person's coming from. I, I don't necessarily research. I find sometimes the story behind the story stuff is cool, though. Like how Mary Shelley came up with the idea for Frankenstein. Mm, you yeah. know, like the whole contest between like a bunch of them and the, you know, and and and, and like so the circum almost kind of like the making of stuff for a film, 
or or what was going or if it's like a movement of authors like the Harlem Renaissance or something and like learning about that movement that I find fascinating was that also touches on like the sociological and historical stuff that I'm interested in as well. I haven't read a lot of author bios. I've, I've read memoirs, you know, or I've read like, um, but if I'm, I'm th- I read in a, I had, I had, I own a biography of E.B. White because uh, I took a course on him in oh, college. Yes. So mm-hmm. I, I have that. I've had that since college. I read it in college An autobiography of a writer who I think is, um, who, hot and cold on his works but this is an amazing book of his it's it's a memoir and it's also like a teaching tool is uh is by stephen king mm-hmm. it's called on writing and it is mixture of autobiography and almost like a seminar and like how i write in my process and um it, it's 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 really incredible it's an incredible book by him and and there are some books by him that i absolutely love and there are some books by him that i didn't hate but i just couldn't couldn't tell you <laughs> like i don't remember them very well because they were all right you know, they're just kind of all right that's cool more popcorn you know <laughs> so. we have a few facebook comments did you, oh, i'm sorry did you have any other comments about no i think that's it okay um robert uh ward also commented on our facebook uh, page about drama um he said that he felt terrible because he wasn't as impressed as dra- by drama as the two of you i liked it and it was stuck struck by how great it was for the target audience but ultimately i don't think it has much staying power for me i think that's fair enough i mean the target audience is much younger than any of us are at the moment while i ended up falling down a rabbit hole reading about the controversy following the release of Ghost. I'm not particularly interested in further Reina works. It probably didn't help that almost immediately I read my lesbian experience with loneliness. It was much more emotionally gripping, and within the fr- just the first few pages, I was instantly more invested than I was with drama. I love the talk about your own experience in theater. I always wanted to act, but I can't sing, and it's always musicals, so I always skipped. I'm going to put that on pause there and say I knew a number of people in high school and even in college who didn't join like a theater program or theater or try out for a play because it was a musical and they were interested in acting but not in musical theater. Um, so I, I can I, I know what he's talking about here. He said uh, he made it up in my senior year, though. Uh, he participated in a parody of American Idol in which his character has a breakdown and starts acting like a dog for the majority of his appearance. He says, I killed it, if I may say so. He said, in the novel, The Harder They Fall, the main character owns a copy of War and Peace. It's described as a book he will occasionally get go back to and try to read before giving up again. Comically, it's stated he ends up spending most of his time, time however, flipping back pages to try to remember who is who. And they did another comment on Don Quixote. War and Peace, I believe, is the book that charlie brown is assigned to read and 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 he misses like the little redhead girl or something like that he talks about uh, his final comment is about don quixote at least kind of like right up to where we were uh he says comparing it to the penguin and barnes and noble classes classics so he talked about the edition that we had um and he said i felt this edition was the clear winner on size and formatting um he said i need to finish my current book unboxing before i can reattempt don quixote i know it's really uh, it's obvious but i hope really hope tom stella asks tom if you were to fry your brain from reading too much what genre do you think you prefer to live the rest of your life obsessed with could you see yourself living out a fantasy world of medieval romances medieval romances that's interesting 
Well, that was wasn't that Don Quixote? Yeah, I don't know so, if I could spend my life. I yeah. maybe the Gothic, you know, the Jane Eyre s Northanger Abbey. I I could do that. Maybe not medieval though. Though I Miss of Avalon isn't that a really well known series? Yeah, or, isn't that or a big book? Yeah, um, Ab- yeah, like a retelling of the Arthurian legend from a woman, from the women's perspective, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So maybe, maybe I could. I don't know if I, I probably if I had if it had to be medieval romances, I probably could. I've read my fair share. Um, mm-hmm. If any other genre, it's so easy for all of us to be like, yeah, superhero comics, because we're all obsessed with them anyway. I would say. I don't think that was. A- an option no that wasn't an option i would say i've read so many coming of age stories that it's almost like that's where it would be Mm. so many coming of age stories (laughs) finally to close it out gene hendrix commented he quotes us as saying if you are our age or you know an adult i don't remember which one of us said that he said i think i did yeah he said i did yeah, so Stella is implying that she and Tom are an adults. Interesting. Yeah. At heart, we're young at heart. I realized I made a boo boo. I said you know, several hours before earlier <laughs> that hours. Uh, <laughs> several? several hours earlier that Robert Ward had me- messaged me on Goodreads. It was Joe Crawford. I just want oh, to okay. clarify that Joe Crawford is the one who heads up the Goodreads little our little required reading mm-hmm. book club on there. So I I apologize for that. Also, I noticed in doing a little bit of research for Don Quixote that apparently the newsroom I think that's on HBO mentions Don Quixote a lot and a lot of the themes running throughout are similar to Don Quixote like it's almost uh, I, I don't know if anyone's familiar with uh, Sons of Anarchy but Sons of Anarchy is based off of Hamlet so maybe Newsroom is somewhat based off of Don Quixote loosely yeah, that's but very possible there you go. feel free to friend us on Goodreads no doubt yeah I'm there and there is a um, required reading with Tom and Stella group that you can certainly um, seek out and, and join. Um, we read, we did. We're not doing a bet this year. Oh gosh. Um, between you and me, um, but I, I'm up to 43 books as of right now, which is way less than last year. Yeah, I um, think I've far surpassed you somehow. Yeah, I I've been. Don Quixote got you down. Yeah, I, I've been reading a lot of. I read a lot of short stories in the last few weeks. But not like only like two full um, anthologies. So I read like I checked out like a bunch of anthologies in the library. But I would read like two or three stories in each one, and then you know, because I was just looking for some stuff. Sure. Um, and I read two completely. So, but I haven't been doing a lot of reading lately. So. Well, I guess this is the part of the episode where now um, Tom lets us know. What we're going to be reading next week. Yeah, so um, our next episode will drop in October. I'm going to make – I'm going to take us back to America. (laughs) I'm going to shorten, significantly shorten our discussion, uh, our reading assignment. And I'm going to go to a a early 19th century American classic uh, that takes place in – um, just north of New York City, um, and it involves a legend. It involves a legend that and that that scares Ace Teacher possibly to death. We don't know whatever happened, to Ichabod Crane, but we are going to be reading the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Oh my by goodness! 
This is oh, I'm so excited. So yeah, that'll be next month. So um, which and it's not a very. I think it's. I, I don't know if it's a short story or a novella. I don't think it's a full novel. I don't. I'd have to look that. Up. But yeah, so we'll be we'll be. That's what we'll be reading and discussing. And yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh, me too. Now. Yeah. Okay. You can take it out. Oh, oh, well, goodness gracious. We're a little rusty, aren't uh, we? Yes. Well, it's been I – don't, I, I can't tell whose fault it is. I guess it can blame me since I'm the host. Yeah, well, it has been delightful. I hope that you guys are safe. You put on your safety harnesses and your jock straps before you go tilting at windmills. Uh, yes, until Did you next actually time. just use the word jock strap? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Don't they still exist? Yeah. Okay, well, why is it not a good thing to use then? Should I set a cod piece? I'm sorry, let me start again. So until you go off tilting at windmills, be sure you have on your armor and your cod piece. Yeah, wear a cup. Protection. Always bring this is <laughs> the this is the moral. Always bring protection, kids. Always bring protection. Go. Thank you very much. This was fun. So thank you, and uh, as always, thanks again, and take care. Thanks for listening. Yeah, keep reading. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Why do you follow him? Oh, that's easy to explain. I... I... Why? I'm telling you, it's because... Because... Why? I like him. I really like him. Tear out my fingernails one by one. I like him. I don't have a very good reason. Since I've been with him, cuckoo nuts have been... In season But there's nothing I can do Chop me up for onion stew Still I'll yell to the sky Though I can't tell you why That I like him But what do you get out of this? What do I get? Plenty by already I've gotten I've gotten You've gotten nothing why do you do it? I like him. I really like him. Pluck me naked as a scalded chicken. I like him. But don't ask me. 
ever wear for Cause I don't have a single good because Or therefore You can barbecue my nose Make a giblet of my toes Make me freeze, make me fry, make me sigh, make me cry Still I'll yell to the sky Though I can't tell you why that I Okay. Did you <laughs> did you <laughs> add any questions to the document? I did not. <laughs> See, I was looking through and I thought, I think these are all mine. And then I thought to myself, the last time this happened was Jane Eyre. So, 